Well, let's go ahead and continue. We continue to go through the book of Ephesians, um, pretty much chapter by chapter, to see what God might say to us as a church today through the Holy Spirit. It was the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Ephesians through the power of the Holy Spirit for Christians in his day, and particularly Christians of all ages. So as we read the Bible, it's literally God speaking to us individually as Christians and also corporately as a church. So that's why we study the Bible, and that's why we are studying Ephesians to see what God has to say about what a church is supposed to be doing and what every individual Christian also is supposed to be doing. Last week, somebody said to me here in the fellowship, hey, I think it's kind of cool how you're like going through Ephesians like verse by verse and in order from beginning to end. That's kind of neat. Uh, did you make that up? I said, no, that, that, that was actually intentional. I didn't make that up. That's the way I was trained in seminary. And actually, that's the way Paul wrote this letter. He wrote it. He didn't have chapters and verses. It was a long letter that he wrote that ended up being six chapters long 2,000 years ago when he wrote it to the Christians who lived in Ephesus, and he wanted them to read it from beginning to end. Dear so-and-so, and then he wanted them to go all the way through in order to the very end, to understand it in context. It's like when you get a personal letter from a friend or your parents, you start at the beginning, dear Cliff, and you read the whole thing and you conclude where they conclude. So you understand everything they say in context, and that's the way Paul wrote this letter. That's the way it's intended by God for us to understand it and apply it. So it's very intentional to go through from beginning to end the books of the Bible, particularly the books in the New Testament. That is called expositional teaching or preaching because we want to know the full counsel of God and what he has to say on every topic in context. And so that's what we've been doing through Ephesians, paragraph by paragraph. And that's what we said is one of the distinctives of this church, Grace Bible Fellowship, is that we do expositional preaching through books of the Bible so that we can know everything in context what God had to say. So we're doing that with Ephesians. And now we're at the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians. We're going to finish chapter 14 through 21. And this is a transitional paragraph by the Apostle Paul because he just spent... Chapter 1, talking about the glories and the riches of personal individual salvation and how special that is, that God elected people in eternity past and marked them out to save them. And then when He did save them in time, He sealed them with the Holy Spirit to guarantee their salvation. So chapter 1 was individual salvation. Then He talked about in chapter 2, corporate salvation, that once you become a Christian, you don't live in isolation. You're saved into a community of other believers. You are a part of a spiritual family of God. And so chapter 2, Paul emphasizes there are no Lone Ranger Christians. We have to live interdependently, interdependently with one another. So it's individual salvation, chapter 1, corporate salvation, chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul went on to unveil the greatest of all mysteries through all time. And that is the mystery of the church, Paul called it, that uh, through the apostles in the New Testament days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God revealed this great truth regarding the church, it was called. And the church was composed of individual people, individual believers, who believed in Jesus Christ and were added to the family of God, no matter whether you were a Jew or a Gentile or a male or a female or how much money you made. If you became a Christian, you were adopted into this new entity, this new body called the church. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. The church wasn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. It was a mystery that God revealed in the New Testament that we are privileged to be a part of and that the Ephesian Christians were privileged to be a part of and that the Ephesian Gentile Christians were privileged to know about it because the Jewish Old Testament prophets didn't know about this great thing called the church. Um, so Paul is encouraging them, reminding them of how privileged they are now as Gentile believers in light of their personal, individual, eternal salvation 
that they belong to a corporate group of other believers, and that they are a part of this great mystery called the church. And Paul sums up these three great themes that he's been tracing all throughout Ephesians with a prayer. And so let's go ahead and read his prayer. It's a culminating prayer. It's a summary prayer, and it's a transitional prayer. He says this prayer based on the three chapters of information he just gave them. He wants to stop and say, you know what? Now I want to pray about these things I've just taught you on so that they can become a reality in your life and so you can apply all these great truths that I just taught you before he moves on in chapter 4, 5, and 6 for a new approach and things he wants to address. So let's look at this great prayer from the Apostle Paul, chapter 3, starting at verse 14. He says, for this reason. That just means, that refers them back to the last three chapters. Everything that I've just been talking about, I want to pray about it for you folks. In light of all these great truths, I bow my knees before the Father. So it's a prayer. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That God would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Holy Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge in order that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What an awesome, powerful prayer. And that's why I titled the message today, Powerful Prayer. Paul, this great apostle, he was a man of prayer. He was committed to prayer. He lived by prayer. He was dependent upon prayer. And fortunately for us, he modeled prayer. So we can read the prayers of the apostle Paul and be instructed, you know what, that's how we need to pray. Because praying does not come naturally. People need to be taught how to pray. You can pray. Most people in the world pray. But not everybody prays the right way. You can pray the wrong way. We know that from Scripture. Jesus had to teach His 12 disciples how to pray and how to pray the right way. The Apostle Paul does the same thing for us. He teaches us by modeling biblical prayer. And in light of that, in light of this prayer, I didn't want to dissect his prayer as much as I just wanted to see the principles of prayer, the great truths that are there for us. So I came up with seven Uh, summary truths that I want us to think about regarding Paul's prayer life and adopt it as our own and make our prayer life like Paul's. And if we do, we're going to have a powerful prayer life. So here's some principles to keep in mind regarding prayer that Paul models for us. Uh, Point number one there regarding prayer is that Paul prayed with reverence to a holy God. He prayed with reverence to a holy God. Do you remember last week if you were here? We concluded by saying the great truth of being a Christian, one of them is, is that we now have direct access to God. We can go to God directly through prayer. And we can do it with confidence, and we can do it with boldness. But there's a balance there. Just because we have direct access to God, just because we can do it with confidence and boldness, doesn't mean we go to God flippantly or carelessly. Some people would have us do that. We're not supposed to do that. We need to keep in mind, even though there's direct access, God is still a holy God. The Apostle Paul knew that. He modeled that for us. He prayed with reverence. To a holy God. Look at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees. That is reverence. The Apostle Paul was talking about a posture he had in prayer that he frequently did. Literally, he got down on his knees. Getting down on your knees is a sign of submission to somebody else. It is an act of respect that you show someone else that is greater than you. And just because we go to God in boldness doesn't mean we throw away or get rid of the reverence and respect that He is worthy of. 
The Apostle Paul, who was caught up into third heaven, still felt compelled to give God respect by bowing his knee to the Father. And we need to do the same. We need to have respect, reverence. Even, I will say this, the Christian even needs to have fear of God. Some people will challenge that statement and say, no, I don't fear God. Well, you need to. The Bible says to fear God, even if you're a Christian. Well, we don't fear Him in that we're going to be punished for our sins if you're a Christian because Jesus already got punished for our sins. So you don't need to be afraid of getting judged regarding your sin, but there still needs to be a fear in terms of a respect we show to God because He is the Creator. He is greater than we are. He is, and primarily that He is holy. That's where the fear comes from. In Isaiah chapter 6 in the Old Testament, we won't go there, but Isaiah had a vision of God in heaven on the throne, surrounded by angels. And the angels, called the seraphim, surrounded God. And these angels were sinless and holy. And yet they cried out to this God that they had direct and immediate access to, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Did you know that's the only attribute repeated three times about God in the whole Bible? That He is holy, holy, holy. It is possible that holiness is the greatest attribute that God has. And holiness implies sinlessness. It implies that He is majestic. It implies that He is holy, other and separate from His creation. Holy, holy, holy. That is reverence. That is respect. That is a healthy fear. If you have your Bible, look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Because I want to. Peter reminds the Christians that they need to have the same attitude towards God when they pray. Or just on a regular basis, you should talk to God. Yes, He is our Father. Yes, there is personal intimacy there. Yes, all of my sins forgiven. Yes, I have direct access to God with confidence and boldness. Yet, I still have a fear of God that is healthy because He is holy. So, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says this and reminds Christians about their attitude towards God. Be obedient, chapter 1, verse 14. Be obedient children before your Father. You're still accountable to Him. Verse 15. Like the Holy One. Remember, He's your Father, but He is holy as well. And be holy in all your behavior. And then in verse 17, And if you address as Father, now He's talking about prayer. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, then conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. That's a healthy fear that the Christian needs to have towards God. Not a flippancy Attitude shouldn't be, Jesus is my buddy, because he's not. Or the man upstairs, when people flippantly refer to God like that. He's not the man upstairs. He is almighty, holy God. Yes, indeed, our Father, if we know him through Jesus Christ personally. But that reverence and respect needs to be maintained. By virtue of the fact that he is the creator, we are the creation. He is the savior, we are the saved. He is absolutely, totally sinless. We are still in sin daily in our lives. Yet forgiven. So Paul prayed with reverence to a holy God. We need to do the same. Now going back to Ephesians chapter 3. Paul goes on. He bows the knee. He's praying on behalf of the saints with reverence, with the right attitude towards God the Father. And he says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So the first thing Paul does when he's talking about, when he's praying, is he acknowledges who God is. That's what he focuses on first. Before he gets to his wish list, God, I want you to do this and this and this for me and do this and this and this. But Before he does that, God, Paul acknowledges rightfully who God is. He is holy. He's worthy of respect. He is the Father. And here he makes reference to the fact that the Father is the one who is the creator of all things. 
specifically in verse 15. He says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That means that God, the God that I talk to, is the creator. The creator of all angels and the creator of all human beings on planet earth and all human beings alive today and all human beings all throughout history is the God that he's talking about. So he's magnifying the character of who God is when he prays. And Jesus said to do the same thing, didn't he? When he taught his disciples how to pray, in Matthew chapter 6, he said, pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. So the first thing Jesus says, when you pray and you want to pray in the right manner, you focus on God and who he is first. You'll get to your specific requests later on. Give God his proper place in prayer. It's adoration, recognition of who he is and how great he is. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing right here. And specifically, this phrase in verse 15 is point number two. Paul prayed with awe to a living God. When Paul prayed, he knew he was praying to a God who was alive. And the terminology is very specific in verse 15. I don't know what your translation says, depending upon your translation. The Apostle Paul refers to God as the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And it's present tense in the Greek, literally meaning it's ongoing. It's a continual action. Every, God continues to name every name. God continues to name every person that is born on heaven. God continues to give birth and create human beings. So God is the ongoing, living, breathing, overseeing creator. He is a living God. That's Paul's emphasis. When I go to prayer, I'm praying to a living being. This is in contrast to the Old Testament uh, pagans and idols, where pagans who didn't know the real God, they prayed to a statue named Baal. And they'd make Baal out of a rock or a tree or whatever was convenient. Christmas present you didn't like? Make it a white elephant? No, I'll just turn it into a God. I'm going to pray to this thing. And it was a dead, living, I mean, it was a dead thing. It was not living. So that was characteristic of false religion. They prayed to dead gods, gods that were not living, gods that could not answer prayer, gods that were not dynamic, gods that couldn't be involved in your life on a personal, intimate way, the, God, the way the God of the Bible is. This is a great story. If you have your Bible, look at 1 Kings 18 in the Old Testament. To some of you, it'll be a familiar story, and it's where Elijah the prophet challenged some false prophets to a duel. And it was a duel of prayer. And in 1 Kings 18, Elijah, who was a good man and a prophet of God, challenged them that his God was better than all of their gods. The true God, Yahweh, was better than the false god, Baal. B-A-A-L. A-L. That was the false god that they worshipped. So in chapter 18, verse 20... Elijah challenges these false prophets on Mount Carmel. Then, in verse 24, he tells the prophets, 450 false prophets of Baal, hey, let's build an altar, and let's call on our respective gods. I'll call on Yahweh, and you call on Baal, and we'll see which God answers, and that'll prove who the true God is. So in verse 24 of 1 Kings 18, he says, you call on the name of your God, which is Baal, which basically was a rock or a tree. It was not a living thing. And I will call on the name of Yahweh, the Lord, the living God. And the God who answers by fire from heaven, He is the true God. And all the people answered and said, That is a good idea. We'll take you up to your challenge, Elijah. So in verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first for you. And there are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox, which was given them, and they prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal 
from morning until noon, six hours, calling out to their God, Baal, come down and consume this sacrifice. For six hours, relentlessly, on and on and on and on and on it was going, morning till noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. Why? Because Baal was not a real God. It was a false God. It was a dead God. It was not the living God. That's the point. They worshiped that which is not alive. No one answered. And they leaped or they danced about the altar which, made, which they had made. So they were trying to wake up this God who was sleeping up there in heaven. Jumping around, 450 prophets, jumping around, hooting and hollering. Woo-hoo, wait, wake up! And here's Elijah watching this thing. He thinks it's comical and sad at the same time because it says in verse 26, or 27, and it came about at noon. So after six hours of this, Paul had enough. I mean, Elijah had enough. So Elijah mocked them or rebuked them because of their false belief in a dead, non-living God. He says, call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he is occupied... Or has gone aside. Literally, he is occupied. He is relieving himself is literally what he said. He must be in the bathroom. He's been there a long time. Well, that's very cynical and sarcastic, isn't it? Wow. He's denigrating their false God. Either he is relieving himself or gone aside. Or he's on a long journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and he needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. On and on. All that just to say they could not... Uh, wake up their dead God because he was not alive. Contrary to, as Elijah goes on, he calls out to uh, Yahweh, the true God, and God answers from heaven, answers Elijah's prayer, and he comes down and he consumes the entire altar in fire. And everybody was amazed and in awe, and they recognized that Yahweh, he was the true, the only, the living God. And that's the same God that we have today. The God of the Old Testament, the God of Elijah, is the God who has saved believers through Jesus Christ. And when we go to the throne of grace, that's who we're talking to, a living God. That's awesome. It's encouraging. And we know that he hears every prayer that we have. So Paul prayed with awe to a living God. Go back to Ephesians chapter 3. Next principle from the Apostle Paul is he's praying through this great prayer on behalf of the saints in Ephesus. Number three, Paul prayed with confidence to a giving God. Not only is he living, he is a giving God. You know, there are some gods out there that are false gods, nevertheless. Some of the gods out there are very stingy and not giving. That is not true of the true God. The God of Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a gracious God. He is a giving God. Paul knows that. Look at verse 16 and 17, because that's why he prayed. That's why you can pray with confidence, because you know God hears. God wants to give to his children. He knows what we need before we even ask him. He wants to provide for us. He's called a father for a reason. Father is supposed to care for their children. I have four children. I care for my children. Hopefully I would die for my children. I like to give good gifts to my children. Did you know that God the Father loves us, His children, more than we love our own children? So God is a giving God. And that should give us hope and confidence in our prayer life. So look at verse 16. The Apostle Paul goes on. Um, I pray that God would grant you or give you according to the riches of His glory. How, how rich is God? infinitely wealthy. What does God own? Everything. And Paul says, I'm going to pray to the God who owns everything and that he would give to you not out of his riches, not a little bit out of his riches, but he's going to give according to his wealth, according to his riches, consistent with his riches. God is infinitely rich. And Paul is begging, pleading, asking God to bless fellow saints according to the wealth and the riches of his infinite glory and grace. And Paul really believed that God the Father would do that, and he will. He can. 
What does he pray specifically? He prays that they would be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in the inner man. There's lessons there of, of how Paul prayed and what he prayed for as he prayed for other people. Verse 17, or where he put the emphasis. Uh, verse 17, in order that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God is. So Paul prayed with confidence to a giving God. Look back at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. Because uh, Paul concluded Ephesians chapter 1 with the prayer as well. He was reminding them, telling the Ephesians that he was praying on their behalf. Look at uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 16. He says, I do not cease giving thanks for you. These were people that Paul evangelized. He saw them get saved. He planted this church. He raised up leadership in the Ephesian church. He kept correspondence with these saints. He was with them for three years. He poured his life into these people, and then he'd been separated with them for five years, and he heard good reports of their progress, how they were growing in the Lord, being a, a testimony in where they were living. And the Apostle Paul says, I give thanks to God for you, because he invested his life in them, verse 17. And he prays thanksgiving while making mention of you in my prayers. Verse 17, in order that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you. Again, I'm praying that God will give you something because the Apostle Paul believed that God is a giving God. Because he is. Jesus himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. The greatest example of gracious giving is Almighty God himself because he gave the greatest gift there was to give to the world, right? God so loved this world, this sinful fallen world, that he gave. That's how you manifest and exemplify love. If you really love somebody, you're going to give to them, aren't you? And you're going to do it in a tangible way. That is the very nature and definition of love. God so loved that he gave. If you have true love, love takes action. Love is a verb, they say. God so loved this sinful, fallen world that he gave. Gave what? The greatest gift there ever was. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus came down to earth, took on humanity, lived a perfect life, God in the flesh, Willingly died and got punished on a cross. Was buried. Three days later, came back from the dead to show that he was Lord of all. And anybody that put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, asking him for forgiveness of sin in a sincere prayer, would become a Christian and be forgiven of their sin. That's John 3.16. That is the greatest gift ever given to the human race. And it came from a gracious, giving God who gave according to his wealth. Not like a miser. Not with a tight fist like old Ebenezer who wouldn't let go. God gives and he gives graciously to those who sincerely call out to him. And that's how we need to pray. By the way, the Apostle Paul in those two prayers in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3, notice he prays very specifically. That's a discipline that we need to learn. When we pray, we need to pray very specifically for things in accordance with the Word of God. Some people just pray generically. How come my prayers aren't being answered? How come things aren't happening? How come God isn't moving? Well, maybe you're not praying specifically enough by name. That's Ephesians chapter 1. He said, I'm making mention of you by name. Specifically by name. That's how we need to pray. God will respond and he'll move in response to that kind of prayer. Because God is a giving God. Let's go on to number 4. How did Paul pray? Well, Paul prayed selflessly. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 3. He's not praying for himself primarily here. He is praying for other people. He is interceding on behalf of others. That's how we need to pray. Typically when we go to prayer, or when some people go to prayer, or when many people go to prayer, or sometimes when I go to prayer... We're not praying selflessly, are we, all the time? Many times it's just me, 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 right? Totally eye-focused. Gimme, gimme, gimme. That isn't how Paul prayed. In, the, in this prayer, in Ephesians chapter 3, his prayer is other-oriented. It is selfless. He's praying for the saints. He's praying for their needs. He's praying for their best interest. He's praying for their spiritual growth. He's very sensitive to their specific needs. 
pray the right way for somebody, you have to be very in tune with what is going on in their life, what their needs are, and be a very good listener. What are they saying? What do they need prayer for? We need to pray accordingly. We need to pray selflessly on behalf of others. That's what the Apostle Paul did, a great intercessor, and he prayed selflessly to a loving God. Loving God. Throughout this whole prayer, there's one main thing that the Apostle Paul wants to emphasize to the Ephesians for them to get in their brain, and that is... The content of the prayer where he says, I want you to understand, to comprehend, to know in a real way what is, verse 18, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of what? Something monumental, verse 19, to know the love of Christ. That's what he wants them to know. Well, they already know the love of Christ. They already got saved. Well, they don't know it enough. They don't know the fullness of it. And they're not practically acting out the love of Christ that they should know. That's why he's praying for them. That they would know the love of Christ. That Jesus Christ is a loving Savior. That Almighty God is a loving God. And he's praying that in light of the fact, listen to what I just told you for three chapters of how much Christ loves you. How much God loves you. He loves you so much that He set His love upon you in eternity past. By name. It's called election. He chose to save you. Even though He knew you would be an unworthy sinner. He put His love around you through predestination. He guaranteed that in time you would be wooed to him to himself and that he would save you. And when he did save you of your sin, he sealed you with the Holy Spirit so that your salvation would be guaranteed in this life and in the next life. And not only that, the love was poured out to us so that when we got saved, we wouldn't be saved in isolation. We would be saved in a community of other believers that starts in this life and continues in all eternity with Christ and God the Father in heaven throughout all eternity. So it's a summary prayer of the love of Christ, the vastness of Christ. Literally, Christ's love is measureless. That's what he means by these terms. The breadth, the length, and the height, and depth of the love of Christ, which surpasses all understanding. The love of Christ cannot be comprehended fully by the finite human mind. Totally impossible. We haven't even scratched the surface yet in terms of how much Christ loves us and what he has done on our behalf. And he's pleading with these Christians. If you would only assimilate, if you would only appropriate the reservoir of infinite love that is at your disposal, Christian, you don't have any idea what you could do for Christ. You know what? And we, need to, we need to think the same way. I am ashamed of my own myopic view of the love of Christ and the impact He can have in my own life, in my own family, and in my own local church. Because <clears throat> it is myopic. It is small. It is puny. I need this exhortation. I need this prayer. <clears throat> so I hope you're praying for Pastor Cliff that way. That I would know the love of Christ that is beyond human understanding and fully appropriated in my own life. And the reason he's praying primarily for that these Ephesian believers would know the love of Christ is in light of the mystery that he just preached. Because he's telling them, remember Gentiles? You were a despised people. You weren't part of uh, the Jewish community. You weren't part of the theocracy of Israel. You were strangers. And now you've been welcomed in by Christ. And now some, and there, there were Jews who were believers in the Ephesian church. So you've got a mix. You've got primarily Gentile believers. And there were some Jews who got converted who were also in the Gentile church. And so you've got Jews and Gentiles trying to get along with this baggage of history that they had in the past. And the only way that these very different, complicated backgrounds and prejudices could be overcome so that people are intermingling with one another with true, unconditional love towards one another is with the supernatural love of Christ. That's the only thing that could overcome their biases. And that's why Paul is praying. 
Paul's saying, I, I know you heard the theology of it, but I don't necessarily see the practicality of it happening day to day in the church in, the, in Ephesus from what I hear. Some of you are still hung up on your prejudices for whatever reason. So I'm praying that you will know the love of Christ that loves Jew and Gentile just the same, men and women just the same. So that's his prayer. So he prayed selflessly to a loving God on their behalf. Just other things we can learn uh, from this prayer from the Apostle Paul already said it, that Paul prayed for spiritual things primarily and not material things. And we need to examine our prayers in light of that, how we pray. He did pray for the... The Apostle Paul did pray for material things at times. Uh, Send me a jacket. I'm freezing here in prison. Um, He prayed for practical things. The Apostle John prayed for uh, health. The Apostle Paul prayed at times for colleagues that they would get better and not be sick. But that was the minority of the time. The majority of the time when the Apostle prayed, he prayed for spiritual things. He prayed for the spiritual development of other believers. There's another principle from the Apostle Paul's prayer life. As you trace them through his 13 epistles, the Apostle Paul wasn't only and always praying for the lost. You talk to some Christians, that's that's what they think the only thing we need to pray about. Get them saved, get them in the door, okay, forget them, off to the next unsaved person. No. As a matter of fact, the priority and the emphasis of the Apostle Paul in his duties, his ministry, and his prayer life was for the growth of Christians. It far outweighs his prayers for the lost, if you compare it. Because the Apostle Paul had the heart of a pastor. He didn't want just people to get fire insurance saved and in the door. Because that's not fulfilling the Great Commission. Paul wanted the Great Commission fulfilled in every person's life. Colossians chapter 1. We want every man complete in Christ. That was the, com- the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ask some Christians, what's the great commission that Jesus gave? Oh, it's to evangelize. No, it's not. It's that people would be saved. No, that is not the great commission. Go back and read it in Matthew 28. It's to evangelize the world and share the gospel. And it's to see people get saved and bring them into the church. And then Jesus concluded the great commission by saying, and teaching them all things that I have said. That's spiritual maturity and development in the life of a Christian. It is a lifelong pursuit. None of us have arrived. And that's the heart of the Apostle Paul. That's my heart for this church or anybody that walks in this door or anybody who becomes a Christian. None of us have arrived. And I pray on their behalf, I plead with God that they would grow in maturity. I'm hoping people are praying for me. That I continue to grow in my maturity and my godliness and my Christ-likeness because I am not there. I'm far from it. This is a lifelong pursuit. And so that's how the Apostle Paul prays. He prays for spiritual maturity of the saints. We need to do the same. The reason we need to pray is because the only way somebody can grow in their spiritual maturity is because it, it takes the human heart to change, right? And can, can another human change another human's heart? No. It takes the Holy Spirit to work on and to soften the eyes of somebody else's heart. Only God can do that. That's why we need to pray and plead with God. God, please soften this person's heart. Open their eyes of understanding. Help them to understand who Christ fully is. Help them to understand the love of God on their behalf. Help them grow. Help them mature. Help them love the Scripture. Help them grow in their desire to know God's truth. That's how we need to pray for others and for Christians, for their spiritual maturity and development for the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's an awesome prayer. Another truth regarding this that we can learn that's very important, the way Paul prayed, is he's basically, he's praying that they would know. He says that word, that they would know, that they would comprehend. I am praying that Christians would fully know and understand all the truths that I just talked about. Paul just laid out three chapters of theology, three chapters of doctrine. 
And now he's saying, now I just pray that they will fully understand it and apply it to their life. And that's how you grow as a Christian. Knowing comes first. You've got to know the content, then you apply it. So Paul is saying that true prayer is based on true knowledge. So the true doctrine, true teaching, true theology, truth has to come first in order to pray the right way. Did you know you can pray the wrong way? You can pray inconsistent with truth and your prayer didn't do any good. I mean, I see that all the time. When I hear somebody pray, particularly children, who pray, dear God, save the whole world. Dear God, help every person ever created go to heaven. Well, that, is, that ain't going to happen. That prayer is not going to be answered because that prayer is not consistent with truth. Because we know that is not going to happen. So we've got to pray in keeping with truth. Or a friend I had in college uh, one time that prayed in a group, Dear God, soften Satan's heart so that he would repent and believe in Jesus and be born again and go to heaven. And the other eight people in the group were like, opening their eyes, Whoa, what, what did they just say? I don't think so. That ain't going to happen because the Bible tells us about Satan. He is not going to repent. He just gets worse and he will be tossed in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. So that prayer basically hit the ceiling and came back down in that room. That prayer did not get answered because prayer has to be in keeping with truth. Truth comes first before prayer. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 4, the Father desires true worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. The two go together. So our prayers need to be in keeping with truth. Great lessons from the Apostle Paul. Let's go on to number five. Paul prayed with praise to an omnipotent God. So he's praying that they'll know fully the love of Christ so that they'll love one another and be loving people, forgiving people, gracious people, patient people. And then he goes on to conclude his prayer in verse 20 by saying, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. So he's giving praise to God. He began the prayer... Making God the focus, he is concluding the prayer. Making God the focus. It's totally appropriate, isn't it? Putting God in his proper place. So he prayed with praise to an omnipotent God or an all-powerful God. That's what he's saying. It's not that God is just strong or capable or able. He is all-powerful. Now to him who is able. Again, Paul uses this word for able there in your Greek. I mean, your English translation, the Greek word is dunamis, where we get the word dynamite. That means amazing power, dynamic power, unique power, supernatural power, spiritual power. God is the one who has that kind of power, and He is able to do abundantly beyond all we ask or think. This is amazing. Paul just stacks these superlatives on top, one on top of the other. I mean, because the verse could have read like this: Now I pray to Him who is able to do. Ex- uh, now I pray to Him who is able to do everything you ask. Well, I, I ask for things, but God is greater than that. He doesn't do just what we ask. He does what we ask or think, right? Because sometimes I'll think something, but I won't pray it because I'm a sissy or I lack faith or I would be embarrassed. But Paul's saying, now to the God who can answer prayer according to what you ask or what you think, and it's not just that, it's beyond what you ask or think. That's amazing. And then not only that, he goes on and stacks up and says, exceedingly or literally infinitely beyond all that you ask or all that you think. It'd be like the Apostle Paul saying, okay, Christian, write down everything you want to pray for that you can conceivably ask, mention, think about, write it all down. And you know what? God can do more than that. Because He is able. He is an omnipotent, all-powerful God. So God prays, gives praise to an omnipotent God. I want to ask you something. Think of something that God has done that is beyond what you asked or even thought about. Talk about something that God has done in your life that was greater than anything you asked for or anything you thought about. Does anybody have one that you can think of? 
back there. Saved you a sinner. Yeah, you couldn't think or ask before you got saved. That's right. Salvation. But that's a good thing to, to meditate through. What has God done in my life that's greater than anything I ever asked or greater than anything I ever thought? And then give him praise and glory for it and thank him for it. Because that's the promise that he said he would do. Let's go on. The Apostle Paul, uh, the second part of this verse, number six, Paul prayed expectantly to a personal God. To a personal God. He had freedom to address God as Father, as Abba, as Daddy, literally, because of his personal relationship to the Creator of the universe by virtue of Jesus Christ, who was the Savior, who made that possible. God is a personal God. He cares what is going on in our life. He listens to our prayers. He answers our prayers. He wants to know what we're thinking. He wants us to pray to Him. He wants us to go to the throne of grace and plead and beg and ask Him, the Father, to meet our needs, to do great things. It says that in verse 20 at the end. God's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you ask or think. Get this. According to the power, same word dunamis. The same word for power. According to the supernatural, infinite, heavenly power that God has that works within us, present tense, that is working on a regular basis inside of us, that works in us is the word energeo, where we get the word energy. So the truth is that every Christian that is truly born again, every true Christian has the supernatural dunamis power of God working inside of them on a regular, ongoing basis. That means at home I have a battery charger in the kitchen. And every time the AA batteries are no good or I don't think they're any good, uh, we check them before we throw them away and we put one thing on one end and one thing on the other end and bloop, oh, fully charged. Bloop, oh, no, no energy left, trash can. Well, according to this verse, every Christian is fully charged. Okay, maybe you're dysfunctional and not working. Maybe you're stuck in the wrong way, backwards and upside down. Maybe you have a leak. The fact of the matter is every Christian is fully charged with the very energy of God, the very power of God, the very dunamis of God, according to this verse. Well, I don't feel like I'm all-powerful. Well, then there's a problem. Then you're not appropriating the power that God has made accessible for you or for me. And that's what Paul's saying. You need to tap into the reservoir of supernatural power that God has given to every Christian by virtue of salvation, and as a result, the indwelling Holy Spirit that lives in every Christian. The Holy Spirit is the reservoir of power. That's what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Wait till the Holy Spirit comes upon you, because that's where the power is. So every Christian has supernatural power from God at their disposal. And we need to use it and tap into it and assimilate it accordingly, with wisdom. That's what he's talking about. But the point is, is he's addressing every one of us on an individual basis. He cares about us. He is a personal God. He wants every one of us to exceed. I want to ask two questions in light of that great verse that we just read right here. The power that works within us, every Christian. What great thing has God accomplished through you? Because it's the power working in us. God wants to do exceedingly great things through us. My question to you, what, has, what great, exceedingly, abundantly amazing thing, one thing, God has done through you, because that's what the verse says, since you have become a Christian? Think about it. Can you think of anything? We should all be able to think of something. Then the second question, what great thing would you like God to do in the future through you that is beyond what you can ask and even beyond what you could think? I know of one. I'll volunteer one. The one, and you can pray this way for me. One thing that I would like God to do through me, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that is beyond anything I could ask or think, is to be the perfect husband. Okay, don't laugh. My wife is laughing. Stop that. That's a perfect example. <clears throat> because being a perfect, exemplary, a godly husband is in the will of God. That's what God desires. Is it impossible for me? Yeah, it is in this life. That's the perfect thing to pray about. And God, you can do it. 
through me, through the Holy Spirit, changing me, changing my heart, changing my mind, leading me, convicting me with your Holy Spirit. And those are the kind of things that the Apostle Paul is talking about that he wants us to pray for and actually try to live out that way. Is that how you think about your prayer life? Do you have a list of things that are virtually impossible on a human level that you want to commit to God and ask Him to work through you to make those things happen? This church is an example of that kind of prayer, isn't it? I, just, I am in awe of Grace Bible Fellowship, of the things that God has done. God has done things that I did not expect. God did things in this church that I never even thought of or conceived of that are great and awesome, and I thank Him for it. So this promise can be fulfilled in your own personal life if we just apply these principles. Then finally, Paul concludes his prayer. That's number seven. Paul prayed with the right priorities to a worthy God. It wasn't just gimme, 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 me, me, me. I want this, I want that, I want health and wealth. Look at how he concludes his prayer. Verse 21, to him, that's to God, be the glory in the church. Everything we do at Grace Bible Fellowship should be to God's glory, shouldn't it? Not our own accolades and accomplishments. Bravo. Bravo on me. No, it's to God be the glory in the church. That's my prayer, that God would be glorified in this church, Grace Bible Fellowship, and in Christ Jesus. To Him be the glory. It's because of Him that we're here. It's because of Him that we're saved. It's all to Christ's glory to all generations. I hope that Grace Bible Fellowship goes beyond my generation. I hope that when Timmy and Rustin are older and grandpas, Grace Bible Fellowship still exists regardless of where they are, and it's still committed to the truth of the Word of God and the glory of God to all generations that Christ might be exalted until Christ comes. And he concludes by saying, forever and ever, amen.